Theodore Roosevelt explored uncharted Amazon territory, helped modernize American football, and won a Nobel Peace Prize. I'm Erin McCarthy, editor-in-chief of Mental Floss and the host of History Versus, a new podcast that shares the inside stories behind some of history's ultimate fighters. Season one tackles Theodore Roosevelt, who went head-to-head with seemingly unbeatable foes like corruption, time, and death itself. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. So if a picture is worth a thousand words, what do you think 1.9 million pictures are worth, Brian? I was never very good at math, Katie. A lot, a lot of words. <laughs> I, I find that hard to believe because you're good at everything. No, no. Well, oh. <laughs> enough. That's how many pictures today's guest took in his eight years as the chief official White House photographer for President Barack Obama. That is right, Katie. Pete Souza is responsible for some of the most amazing and iconic photos from President Obama's time in the White House. Like one of my favorites, the one from the Oval Office of President Obama bending over so a little African-American boy could touch his hair to see if it's like his own. Or, or how about that picture, which we discuss from the Situation Room when the national security team watched the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. And I'll never forget those intense expressions on everyone's face or the fact that Hillary Clinton was the only woman seated in a room full of men. But I digress. <laughs> anyway, we talked with Pete Souza about his experience working for President Reagan. He was in that White House, too, about how he first got to know Barack Obama when he was a junior senator from Illinois and about his continuing relationship with the president, which has lasted to this day. And if you want to see what we're talking about, instead of just listening to us talk about photographs, I am wondering about this medium to talk to a photographer. (laughs) But hopefully we're painting some pictures for you in our descriptions. Pete is out this week with a book of photographs called Obama, An Intimate Portrait. I'm looking at Pete's beautiful book, which has some of the beautiful photos that you took during your eight years of covering President Obama. You must have gotten to know him very, very well, Pete. And I'm sure you could write an excellent (laughs) tell-all, but you're not going to. Tell us about what you observed and learned from being around Barack Obama all that time in a whole array of situations. Oh, where to begin, Katie? Um, I met him on his first day in the Senate. So in January, I think it was January 4th, 2005. And still know him today. Just saw him last week. And the character of the guy has not changed one bit, even though he had this amazing job for eight years, grueling, so many experiences, The core of him is still the same. How would you describe that core? Decent. He's a decent man trying truly every day. I think he went to work and he was thinking about what's the best thing for the country in any decision, some of which were not politically popular. He also thought about the we live in this age of social media and everything's today and react right away. And he was not afraid to think the long term, right? What's what's the right thing to do? 
in the long term. Pete, what would you say are President Obama's biggest strengths and weaknesses? And and along those lines, what do you think the public doesn't get still about President Obama? The I started arguing with a not arguing. I started responding to a question the other day from a I won't mention person's name, but they were like, tell me about the two Barack Obamas. And I'm like, there's not two Barack Obamas. What are you talking about? And I think the point being that he said that President Obama was aloof. And he was not aloof. People tend to try to caricaturize our presidents based on incomplete information. And I think that's what's happened in this case. He was a, he was a guy who had a core group of friends. He enjoyed spending time with his family. And he, he didn't like the Washington, you know, party circuit. And so I think a lot of people thought because he didn't socialize the way you're supposed to socialize in Washington, that people came up with this idea that he was aloof. So I was just like, let's knock that down right now. Having said that, he was a cool customer. I mean, let's face it. Oh, no, I no, think no. he Defin- was very uh, – I would say he had a cool temperament, wouldn't you say, Pete? Oh, no, no, absolutely. Very even-tempered. You know, it's interesting that some people have asked me to compare him with President Reagan, who I also spent some time as a White House photographer for President Reagan. That's sort of like the one characteristic that they had that was similar, where Reagan, too, was very even even-tempered. But – President Obama, maybe even more so. I think that had to do with his upbringing and being from Hawaii. Um, your listeners know that he actually wasn't born in Kenya, right? <laughs> Hopefully. Okay. I don't know, you know, because— We have know. a lot of faith in our listeners, yeah. so I believe they do. <laughs> but, Pete, you still haven't answered the question. What What were his biggest weaknesses and biggest strengths? I mean, No I th- weaknesses at all? I mean, weaknesses. It's like it's hard, it's, it's hard to— say, okay, he wasn't that good of a dancer. How's that? He thought he was, but he really wasn't, you know. Uh, he's a good singer, though, I got to say. He carried a tune pretty well. Oh, he was so good when he sang yeah. Al Green. What yeah. other songs did he used to sing? Um, Lean on Me, you know, that was a big one, I think. Little Bill Withers? Yeah. What yeah. else? Um, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Really? Yeah, sure. Like September? Stevie Wonder, you know, Yeah. And what do you think the public still doesn't get about Barack Obama? Oh, I think they I think they get Barack Obama. I really do. I think they get him. He was two I'll tell you two things about him that maybe well, people may know about him, but they don't know this much about him. One, very disciplined guy. I mean, this is a guy who just in terms of like exercise and diet more disciplined than any other person I've ever met. Didn't he used to eat like six almonds no, that he lined like, up on that, his desk? Yeah, that was just somebody I think told that to a reporter almost as a joke. They were trying to make the point that he didn't eat like you know junk. A McDonald's, lot, yeah. So Cheetos. they just said, "Well, he eats this number of almonds every day." That's I don't I don't know that that was true. Can we like curse on this? Yeah, totally. Podcast? Yeah. Okay, that was bullshit. You know, I think. <gasps> I'm kidding. Okay. It's just like, <laughs> it's nice to be able to. Yeah. I think he was probably, I think he was probably, people were probably goofing on him for being so disciplined, right? And that is one of his key characteristics, wasn't it? Well, but it, it carried over to his work. 
And so every night, uh, sometime after dinner, between like 7.30 and 9.30, depending how organized the staff was, he would get his briefing book for the next day. It was this thick binder, memos for every meeting that he was going to have, background, you know, a schedule, a list of people that were coming to any event and their background, memos for national security meetings, things like that. And he was disciplined so much that I can only count maybe one or two or three times in eight years where he'd be in a meeting and he wouldn't say, I read the memo, so let's just get to the crux of the issue. Meaning he always did his homework. He would always read his 10 letters. Um, The correspondent staff would choose 10 letters that spoke to the number of letters he was getting. Uh, some of them were not complimentary. and But every day he would read those 10 letters at night too. So he was very disciplined in his work as well as exercise diet. He did smoke a few cigs every now and then, didn't he, Pete? He quit smoking in, I forget exactly when it was. It was either 09 or early 10 and has never had a cigarette since. Really? He didn't yeah. sneak cigarettes nope. every now and then? Nope. Did he chew Nicorette gum? Yes. <laughs> he popped Nicorette oh. the rest of his administration? Yes. That's okay. <laughs> Tell me about sort of like despite the fact that President Obama was, was super cool and disciplined and even tempered, did you see him get really mad or really upset at all? He, he would get set – you know, Axelrod used to talk about um, – his analogy was, we've got the best running back of all time, and what we continue to do is give him the ball on every play, meaning that he was sometimes overscheduled, and sometimes he would not like that and get upset when um, he was overscheduled. <laughs> so he'd get ticked. And did he have flashes of temper in situations like that? You know, occasionally, but it was sort of like one of those things where, you know, he could, uh, he, he got mad at me a couple of times. He did? Yeah, yeah. And I was mortified. Uh, and like the next day, it was as if nothing had happened. Why so did he get mad at you, Pete? It was usually a competitive situation. What do you mean? Like we're playing cards on Air Force One. Oh. And, you know, yeah. So he'd get mad at you because you'd beat him in cards? N- not, not, be- maybe the way I, you know, occasionally played a hand or something like that. And what about getting upset? Did you ever see President Obama cry? Well, he cried at Newtown. He cried recalling the events at Newtown publicly a couple times. Did you ever see him cry privately? Um, I mean, at Newtown. I mean, I think uh, in, in greeting the families backstage before that event. It was horrific, you know. Yeah. That, that was a really difficult time. I think one of the most extraordinary things I witnessed President Obama during his presidency was that speech in Charleston. Yeah. And he um, at some point decided to break into Amazing Grace. What a moment that was. And that was completely extemporaneous. We talked to Valerie Jarrett about that. That's an interesting day because that was such a 
uh, wrenching day emotionally when we went down to Charleston for Reverend Pickney, I believe his name was, his funeral. Um, that's why we had gone to Charleston. This was the church shooting. And if you remember, uh, earlier that day, the Supreme Court had upheld same-sex marriage. And so we came back that night to D.C. It was a Friday night, and someone on staff had come up with the idea to uh, light the White House in rainbow colors that night. So we went from this just awful, emotional day in Charleston and came back to the White House just before dark, and then they started to light up the White House. And it was uh, just an extraordinary day of emotions, good and bad. Uh, it was like one of those days that you sort of never forget. We're going to take a quick break, but uh, don't go away, everybody. Keep those earbuds firmly implanted because we'll be back soon with more from Pete Souza. This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most, there's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining, we've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind, so find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. And now back to our conversation with Pete Souza. Pete, we're going to return to your experiences with President Obama because there's a lot more we want to talk about. But first, let's go back and talk about you. (laughs) You grew up in Massachusetts. You trained to be a journalist. Why a photographer rather than a reporter? I went to Boston University, and I actually wanted to become a sports writer. So I went to their communications school. Um, I, I, I thought I would be interested in photography. I wasn't sure. So I took a photo class, photo one, my junior year. I had never really taken pictures before. And I think that the, the first time that I was in the darkroom um, developing a print 
and in the tray and there's a developer and you're kind of like shaking the tray you have these red safe lights on so you see this image start to appear and it was to me it was like magic and i think like that day i was like okay this is what i want to do you worked at the chicago tribune and national geographic and and then you became an official photographer for president reagan how did you get that I, job i went to uh, grad school at kansas state university Went to work for a couple of newspapers in Kansas. And at one point, I had interviewed for a job at the Kansas City Star. And there was a, a director of photography by the name of Carol Greenewalt who had interviewed me. But she didn't, she didn't hire me. She, she, she gave the job to somebody with more experience. Um, and unbeknownst to me, she kind of continued to follow my career. She then became the White House photo editor working under Michael Evans, who is Reagan's chief photographer. And so at some point in 1983, they had an opening for someone to work under Michael. And so Carol suggested me, and that's how I, that's how I got to the White House the first time around. Where do you stand politically? And was it ever hard, Pete, for you to work for someone with whom you disagreed politically? Or did you just separate yourself from that? Uh, I separated myself from it to a certain extent. There were certainly things that um, President Reagan, you know, some of his policies I didn't, I didn't agree with. But at the same time, I respected him as a person, and I could see that he he was trying to do what he thought was right. Did you ever say, "Hey, Mr. President, I'd no. like a word with you"? No, I'd like to I'm discuss. Smarter than that, Katie. I'd like to discuss uh, you breaking up the air traffic controllers union and what impact that might have on the working man. Katie, I'm smarter than that. <laughs> Give me some credit. <laughs> How would you compare President Reagan to President Obama? I know you said they both have similar temperaments uh, or had similar temperaments when they were in the White House. Any other ways of comparison? That was almost like another lifetime ago for me. And I've had some people ask me that question, and I, I'm still having a— a difficult time um, making those comparisons because I'm so in the moment with President Obama. I mean, I spent eight years with him, the last eight years, and then the last year working on this book. So it's hard to go back to that time. What did you do between President Reagan and President Obama? So that's when I freelanced for nine years for National Geographic, but also with other magazines, some commercial work, and then went to work for the Chicago Tribune for nine years in their D.C. bureau as their uh, national photographer. Pete, after 9-11, you were among the first journalists to cover the fall of Kabul, Afghanistan. Um, having crossed, I read, the Hindu Kush mountains on horseback in three feet of snow to get your pictures. What what was that experience like? Uh, that was. <laughs> I'm 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 glad I'm still sitting here right now. That was those 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 uh probably one of the more difficult things I've done physically. You know the Hindu Kush Mountains, twenty thousand feet, snow, and as majestic as it was, it was it as soon as the sun went down, it got so cold, and we thought we were going to freeze to death because we really weren't dressed for weather like that, and we came across. This Northern Alliance hut. So these are the guys that were fighting the Taliban within inside Afghanistan, and they had this little hut that we came across, 
and with a little wood burning stove and we spent the night in there and i think we would have frozen to death if we had not come across this uh this little hut and i remember like there was like i don't know 18 or 20 of us and there's probably not an inch of space um that was not covered by a body <laughs> so then the, the next morning we we were able to get out of the hindu kush and make our way closer to Kabul. And we actually thought we might have to be there the entire winter because everybody was saying the fighting season, as they called it, was coming to a close. And uh, lo and behold, in the, in the next four days is when the Northern Alliance, backed by American fighter jets, B-52 bombs, made their final push and into Kabul, and Kabul fell. So it was... Our timing was uh, was quite fortunate. Were you ever in a, a lot of danger, grave danger? Um, I mean, compared to some foreign correspondents, maybe not. But I do remember walking with the Northern Alliance uh, down this one dirt road and hearing sniper bullets whizzing by. And I, I couldn't tell if they were five feet above my head or 50 feet above our head. But when you hear a bullet whistling by, that's a little unnerving. And we had a couple, we got close to some rocket-propelled grenades that were coming in. Uh, and and I, I learned a valuable lesson, never stand by the tank. I mean, I was near the Northern Alliance tank, and that's what the Taliban was trying to take out. So I kind of learned very quickly Stay away from stay, tanks. Stay away from tanks. <laughs> good, good practical advice for us all. <laughs> so, so you were in Washington, as you mentioned, as a photographer for the Chicago Tribune, and the new senator from Illinois was this guy named Barack Obama. Why do you think you two hit it off the way that you did? Because your relationship, I think, quickly went beyond just you know a photographer and a and a new member of Congress. He he kind of was forced to get along with me in the sense that he couldn't get rid of him. The guy was shadowing him all him. the time. Right? <laughs> so Jeff Zeleny, who now works for CNN but was then a correspondent in the Washington Bureau, had, had come up with this idea of let's let's do sort of like uh, a, a documentary print print wise uh on his first year in the Senate. And the Obama communication staff was really trying to low profile him that first year in the Senate because there had been a lot of hype after his 2004 speech. And so they were really trying to like stay under the radar. But because we were the local paper, his hometown paper, they acceded to giving us access, especially me, where they were letting me go behind the scenes, cover his meetings. Jeff and I actually did a congressional delegation trip with Obama and Luger, Senator Luger, to Russia, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, to look at dismantled nuclear weapons. And it was very unusual for them to take journalists along on a congressional delegation plane like that. So just by close proximity and, you know, small talk here and there, and I think he appreciated the way I worked, which I call low footprint, got to know me a little bit. I think he liked my pictures, and I think he liked my sometimes sarcastic sense of humor. When you were asked to go back and be the White House photographer, was there a part of you, Pete, that said, yuck, I don't want to 
be stuck working at the White House 24-7 when I could be covering more interesting things outside the building. I, I, I recognize the historic aspect of his presidency. And one of the things that I learned in my coverage of him as senator was he was a great photographic subject in that the presence of the camera didn't affect what he did. He wasn't self-conscious. He wasn't self-conscious at all, which was extremely important, and it's very rare, especially in a politician. So was President Reagan self-conscious? He was an actor. He must have been. He was an actor, you know, probably a little more so, yeah. Did he pose for the camera a little bit? Because that is what he did for a living at one point. President Reagan? Yeah. I mean— if you go back to the 80s, this is the this is a, at a time when magazines kind of ruled the photographic world, right? And they would schedule like 15-minute photo shoots with President Reagan. You know, one week it was for Time, two weeks later it was for Newsweek. And so he was kind of forced to, um, to do those kinds of shoots. And contrast it with President Obama, although he had no problem with allowing me tagging along with him or if there was a magazine photographer that was going to spend the day with him and they would just shadow me um, to get pictures he had no problem with that but when it came to posing for photos magazine covers things like that president obama just didn't that was not his thing he didn't like doing that at all. So you probably got a lot more natural, spontaneous shots Absolutely. of him as a result. There were a lot of personalities in that White House when you covered it, Pete. And I wanted to ask about Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. What was the president's relationship like with each of them as you viewed their interactions in real time? He was a bro with Joe Biden. <laughs> Did I they mean, have a bromance? They had a bromance. I mean, I think that— um, what an excellent choice he was for vice president. Uh, I don't think they knew each other that well coming in, but over time, they f- formed this unique bond. It was a brothership, and you know, Joe Biden was the older brother. And I think President Obama respected his opinion on every issue. I don't think he always agreed with him, but certainly respected and wanted to hear what Joe thought all the time. What about Hillary? With Hillary, history is going to show that what a courageous decision it was for him to hire her as his secretary of state. I mean, they had this brutal campaign, right? And as she's written and as he's written, it was, I think, at first, I guess she didn't want to do it. She didn't think this would be possible. But what a a good decision that was. I would say it was very magnanimous. Yes, Yeah. And the president had just read, I think, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals, and was partly inspired by that. Both Biden and Clinton had run against Obama, of course, in 08. Um, Maybe the most iconic image you took, Pete, featured Obama, Clinton, Biden, and others. And it was taken at 4.06 p.m. on May 1st, 2011, in the Situation Room, when the national security team was tracking the operation against Osama bin Laden. What was it like to be in that room at that moment? Well, I'll take you back to um, to that day and everyone jamming into that little conference room. 
which is across the hall from the big conference room within the situation room where the communications link had been set up in this this little room. And the president decided he wanted to monitor this, and they didn't think they could um, switch the link to the big conference room without losing the signal. So that's why everybody piled in. And if you look at that picture, you see the president is not seated at the head of the table because there was a brigadier general who was on a laptop communicating with Admiral McRaven. And as he stood up to give his seat to the president, the president just said, no, 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 you stay there. And he pulled up a chair right next to him, this folding black chair, I think, which is now in the National Archives. So everybody was focused for 40 minutes on what was taking place in Pakistan. And if you look at all those faces and you realize nobody's talking, they're just observing. You have the most powerful people in the government in that room, and they're, they're helpless. They're powerless to do anything about what's taking place. They've made the decision already in the weeks and days before, and now all they can do is hope that these guys that are carrying out this mission are successful because this could have gone really bad. And as a matter of fact, it started out really bad when one of the helicopters crashed coming into the compound. So things could have gone south, and I think that's what accounts for all the tension and anxiety you see in every one of those faces. Understandably so. Why do you think they released that photo fairly quickly after that day? So the following day, this was on a Sunday night, I believe, when the president made the announcement. And on Monday, I came into the office. Ben Rhodes, who's a deputy national security advisor, his office is across the hall from me. So when he came in, I just popped into his office and I was like, Ben, should we think about editing some of these photos from yesterday? And he's like, yeah, let's do it. So I went through, I I shot 1,000 pictures that day, 1,002 to be exact, and went back through all the pictures and the the one that people refer to as the Situation Room photo was one of them. But there were like several meetings during the day. I've got pictures of him calling President Bush, President Clinton. So I've got sort of the whole day, and we ended up choosing, I think, like nine photos, including that one, to release to to the world. You were in so many sensitive situations so many times you know, to quote Hamilton, in the room where it happened. Um, How did the president and his team learn to trust you so completely that no matter what they said or did, that you would keep it in confidence? Did you have to sign an NDA? I didn't sign an NDA, but I think it was was understood. I was never going to leak anything. Plus, you know, most of the the actual real top secret stuff is in paper, right, is in memos. Yes, they talk about it during meetings, but I wasn't privy to paperwork. And when you're a photographer in those situations, you're worrying about clicking the shutter at just the right moment, your composition framing, trying to capture the mood and emotion. You're paying attention to the general conversation so you can accurately capture that mood and emotion. But I couldn't relay any, like, 
State verbatim. <laughs> well, but I couldn't. I mean, I was not there to take notes. What kind know. of camera did you use, Pete? See, you're like one of those, aren't you? You just like want to know the. No. <laughs> I am one of those. Because <laughs> so, so I'll first say this: like the camera you use doesn't matter. It's like the person behind the camera, you're right? right? Okay, you're right. But but, but for, for, okay. For the so, photographers yes. in our listening uh, audience, yes. So I used the Canon 5D Mark II, and then upgraded to the three before I left. And the reason I chose that camera coming into the White House was it was quieter than the Nikon. The Nikon was just too loud. And I thought the most important aspect, because all the cameras were good by then, the quieter camera was what was really important to not disturb what was going on. You don't want to have this loud clang going off every five seconds or something. You you sometimes used your smartphone too, though, Pete, right? I did. I started mostly during the second term. Uh, I would use an iPhone occasionally to usually like shoot little snippets away from the action. I'm looking at your table here. And if, if this was at the White House, I'd be like zooming in on some of these cool faces that people have drawn on the table. Right. Things like that. So just sort of more fun. Let's talk about election night 2016, something that we're actually marking the anniversary of. What was election night 2016 like for you, Pete? Oh, man. Uh, so Don't hold back. No. <laughs> it, it was um, it was sort of living in a surreal world. So I had I had talked to the president earlier in the day and he had said, well, I'm going to call Hillary and, and Trump uh, probably be pretty late, 11, 12 o'clock. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go home and have dinner with my wife. And then I'll just wait to hear, you know, see how it's going and then come back in and come up to the residence just to, you know, document that call. Um, and then watch the results at home with my wife and, you know, disbelief because I had believed everything that I was reading and hearing, you know, like the kind of things Katie was telling me and other people <laughs> that Hillary is going to win. And I could see that this, this was going to be a long, a, a long night and B, it wasn't going to go so good for the Democrats. And I, I actually went to bed when I got word that I can't remember if the president sent a message to somebody who then forwarded it to me, and it was basically, I'm not going to call anybody tonight. And I just couldn't watch TV any longer, so I, I went to bed. And I remember waking up around 6 or 6.30 in the morning, and I had like a million text messages, and so I didn't kind of really need to look at the AP story and find out what had happened. And in fact, Pete, we now know that the night before the election, I don't know, maybe you witnessed this, the president said to Hillary after that rally at which they both appeared in Philadelphia, you got this, I'm so proud of you. So he clearly expected that she would win. And we also know that on election night, I guess you weren't there for that moment, the president called 
Hillary's team to encourage her to concede because he wanted the peaceful transfer to happen in as orderly and smooth a way as possible. Uh, I was not there. That must have been <laughs> like three o'clock in the morning or something. Fast forward to President Trump came to visit President Obama, and shall we say it was a bit awkward? <laughs> <laughs> you were there. There were a lot of photographers there, in fact, because it was a photo op. Uh, you watched this. What were you feeling? What was he feeling? What was the mood of the room? Was it as sort of uncomfortable as it appeared? Hmm. I think President Obama was very gracious, I might add. Didn't you think from the think video his... I saw? I mean, I'll I'll tell you this because he said this. Um, he remembered very much how President Bush treated him during the transition. And despite the fact that the election didn't go the way he wanted, um, the American people had spoken. And his duty was to give President-elect Trump the same respect that President Bush gave him. One of the most memorable photos, Pete, of yours, of many memorable photos, was the day after the election when it looked like uh, members of the White House staff were going to either throw up or uh, as if they were attending their mother's funeral. So <laughs> talk about that photo. So that this is the day after the election. The president comes in uh, to the office from the residence. And he says to Ferriel Govashiri, his personal aide, why don't you get Josh down here? That's the way he said it. Because he wanted to uh, relay to Josh, um, Josh Ernest, Josh the Ernest, press, press secretary, how he should describe the president's reaction during his press briefing. So Ferriel called Josh just down the hall and uh, got word that Josh was in with his team. And so the president said, well, just tell Josh to bring his team down. And what neither one of them knew was it wasn't just Josh and his three deputy press secretaries. There were like 60 people in Josh's office, researchers, speechwriters, national security people, all the regional press people, and so when the Oval Office door opened and people started walking into the Oval Office, and it wasn't just four people, it was like 50 people, the president had to kind of change what he was going to say because it was no longer about, hey, Josh, here's how I think you should say what the president thinks of uh, what happened last night. So instead, he kind of had to be the adult in the room and um, – be consoler-in-chief? Be Well, I wouldn't say consoler-in-chief, but be, you know, the chief of pep talk. But it's that picture is in my book, and I think the faces that you see will articulate how people felt better than my words can. I think you're right because, um, yes, everyone looks pretty darn devastated. Now, you've said you're not going to comment on President Trump, but that said, you've become famous and amassed quite the Instagram following, posting old pictures from the Obama White House. At very opportune times, we should add. Yeah, let's face it, really trolling President Trump. I mean, the, the picture 
in many ways is so much more devastating than any written criticism might be. So you've been, you know, a one-man, you know, attack machine against President Trump by releasing these photos. I don't, I, I think that's probably a little hyperbolic. I would say it's almost a little <laughs> slyer than that. I think there's a bit of a, a wink and a nod when Pete posts photos, which seem to tell a very different story than what may be going on in the Trump administration. Would you say that's a little safer than a tack dog? I, I, I stand by my characterization. The photos are meant to convey that President Obama uh, would not have handled whatever it is this way. And in fact, was dramatically different. And it it casts a sort of a nostalgic glow on the previous administration. I, I like hearing you guys talk about this. <laughs> Go <laughs> ahead, Katie. How would you assess it, Pete? Uh, well, one thing is like when someone first uh, wrote a story about this, about my Instagram feed, there was something about, there was a headline about, you know, a former White House photographer throwing shade at the Trump administration. And I... <laughs> I had to look up what throwing shade meant because I didn't really didn't know what it meant. Um, it's purposeful that I haven't really talked about this. Um, now that I have a book out, I kind of am forced to, to discuss it. You are, Pete. Um, <laughs> but it kind of speaks for itself. And I think I'm doing it in a way that actually is pretty respectful. I don't think it's hateful. I think it's respectful. I think it's playful. And I think it's subtle enough, especially when you compare it to what some people, for instance, say on Twitter. I think I'm a lot more respectful than that. Some people, air quotes, you're talking about the president, of course. I I didn't say that. (laughs) I mean, I don't think it's hateful. That said, you know— You said it was, though. <laughs> no, he no. said it was kind of an attack. You were kind of an oh, attack. I said you were an attack yeah. machine. I'm not an attack machine. Come on, Well, man. When, the, when there are reports out that the president is attacking his attorney general or criticizing Jeff Sessions, and you immediately post a photo of President Obama in a very kind of respectful pose with Eric Holder, I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, you're—, you're Shining a spotlight on that news, and and you're striking a contrast. You've been a bit of a fact checker as well. For instance, when President Trump says that President Obama did not call Gold Star families, you basically prove him wrong photographically. Well, I I, I will say this: President Obama um, visited Walter Reed twenty four times every three months. Visited hundreds of wounded soldiers, spent hours with them. We'd go to events around the country, and he would so often meet privately with Gold Star families, families who had lost a son or daughter, husband, uh, killed in action. It was constantly that he did those sorts of things. And I was just posting public domain photos that had been made public earlier and um, just, you know, putting them up there for people to see. Well, clearly this mischaracterization, you bite your nails like I do. No, I got a little hangnail I'm trying to get rid of. (laughs) This mischaracterization definitely stuck in your craw and others continue to stick in your craw. And you're, (laughs) I mean, listen, let's call a spade a spade. (laughs) 
I think I've said enough already on this. I, I've made my point, and I continue to make my point in a very subtle way, and I will you know, occasionally do that as well. I wonder how it feels to watch the Trump administration uh, systematically undo much of President Obama's legacy, because you were there, Pete, during many of these signature accomplishments. I can imagine uh, it's troubling for you. I, I, um, the, uh, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Who said I that? have confidence in, uh, the American people and our country that, um, even if sometimes things go the wrong way, that eventually they will get righted. You still have a relationship with President Obama. You see each other. Can you just kind of update us and tell us how he and, and uh, Mrs. Obama are doing? I, I haven't seen him that much. I, I was at the Obama Foundation Summit last week. So I spent a couple of days with him then. Um, I went to Texas with him for that benefit concert for hurricane victims that wasn't on assignment. I just called and see if he had an extra seat on his plane because I thought that would be a st- historic time. And, you know, there's not going to be many times where the five formers are going to be together. And I thought it'd be um, it's something that I should photograph for the historical record. So I went along with him on that. I think he's doing fine. Um Michelle's doing fine. He said everybody's happy. Malia's at college. Sasha's in high school. I think life is good. You got to know the girls pretty well too, I didn't did, you? Yeah. And got to watch them grow up I because did. that's a that's a lifetime for a kid. It doesn't seem like a very long period of time for us old folks. Well, Brian, you're not really old, but Pete and I are. Yeah, <laughs> uh, getting there. Um, yeah. But you really got to see them grow up and develop into, you know, young women. There's a, there's a picture in my book. Um, my book is chronological. So it, you, see, you see the family come in throughout the, the book. And I think one of the last pictures of the girls is at the dinner for Prime Minister Trudeau, state dinner of Canada. And they were the only time they were invited as guests. And they have these long gowns on. And it's like, oh, my gosh, they've grown up. They're it's now- like sunrise, sunset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. sing in every podcast yeah. a little something, Pete. So okay. thank you for giving me some a little yeah. suggestion there. In closing, Pete, what is President Obama's favorite photo? Has he, he ever described that to you? The one I just talked about is actually on his uh, bookshelf at his new office. He used to say he came across the picture that I have of uh, Spider Man. You know, the little kid who's zapping it's really him. Really cute. Yeah, I remember he when he first saw that picture. He goes, "Oh, that's like my favorite photo." And then I think within a week there was a really cool photo with Sasha Malia, and that was it. From then on, it was always something that the girls were in uh, were the ones that he really treasured. And speaking of the girls, you told me as we were preparing for the podcast and waiting for Brian, who got stuck in traffic in Los Angeles. Um, I'm sorry, you, I'm, I'm teasing. You told me what President Obama used to tell his daughters, which I thought was really interesting and sweet and made me think maybe I should 
say that to my daughters. Well, I thought you were going to do you're going to use that with me today because the first part of it is be kind and be useful. And that's not a bad uh, advice for a parent to give her child. Um, and it's not a bad thought to have in the back of your head going forward in life. Be kind and be useful. Pete Souza, this was really fun. And what are you going to do now? You you spent the last year working on this book. Um, I'll probably take some time off, but I want to do some new photography. What that is, I don't know, but um, I, I, I'm not done yet. I don't plan to do any more political photography. Um, I think once you've been in the White House, especially with this president, I think I, it's time to retire from political photography and move on to something else. You never know. 2020 may afford you some new opportunities. Michelle is not going to run. So <laughs> if that's what you're hinting at. Thank you, Pete. And good luck with the book. It's beautiful, and your photographs are so fun to look at. You're one of my favorite things on my Instagram feed. So well, thank you. Thank you so much, Pete. It's an extraordinary book. Thank you, Brian. I'm not an attack dog. (laughs) (laughs) As usual, we'd like to thank our production team. Gianna Palmer is our producer. Even though she's not here today, she's still our producer. Nora Ritchie is our production assistant. And Jared O'Connell engineers and mixes the show. And Ryan in L.A. helped to engineer today's show as well. A special thank you and shout out to Allison Bresnick. Not only does she have her finger on the pulse of all things social media, but she booked our interview with Pete Souza this week. Well played, Allison. Well played. <laughs> Mark Phillips is the man behind our theme music. And Emily Bina makes the magic happen over at Katie Couric Media. Don't forget to find us on social media. I'm Katie Couric on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I'm Katie.Couric on Snapchat. Brian Mewell is tweeting up a storm over at Goldsmith B. On Twitter, he's very amusing and slightly outspoken. (laughs) Ever so slightly. And if you have feedback or guest ideas, do drop us an email at comments at currickpodcast.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 929-224-4637. Until next week, thank you so much for listening. Later. So, impeachment. I mean, holy sh**, right? If you want to know WTF is going on right now, well, I've got just the podcast for you. I'm Hayes Brown, a reporter and editor at BuzzFeed News and the host of Impeachment Today, a daily podcast produced in partnership with iHeartRadio. In just 10 to 15 minutes every weekday morning, I'll catch you up on what just happened with the help of other BuzzFeed News reporters to figure out what it all means and give you the context you need to understand WTF is really going on right now. Listen and subscribe to Impeachment Today on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.